engagement rings because she thought they all looked the same had just morphed into a very close approximation of a Stepford wife. Was I just bitter? Of course I was bitter. The closest I'd come to being engaged was reading the wedding announcements in the New York Times, a.k.a. the single girl sports page, every Sunday at brunch. But that was beside the point. I can't wait to hear every last detail, but you've got an engagement to consummate. Get off the phone with me and go make your fiancé happy, I said. Oh, Avery's on a call from work. How has your night been? Ah, another stellar Friday. Let's see. Millington and I took a walk over to the river, and then I came home and hopefully killed what must be the largest insect in the tri-state area. And now I'm about to dine on reheated rice and beans and a packet of stale Twizzlers. Okay, honey. Penelope calls into the distance, my dinner plans understandably of little interest. Avery's off the phone and is pulling on the cord. I've got to run, but I'll call you later. Love you. We hung up, and I stared at the phone for a few minutes before twisting my body out the window in a futile attempt to see a few inches of comforting river landscape. The apartment wasn't much, but it was, thankfully, all mine. Even though it was so long and narrow that I could stretch my legs out and almost touch the opposite wall, and even though it was located in Murray Hill, and even though the floorboards were warped slightly and the water bugs had taken over, all that mattered was that I had rain over my own private palace. The building was a cement monstrosity on 34th and 1st. It had sweeping East River views, as long as one's definition of sweeping views includes a construction crane, a couple of dumpsters, a whole wall of windows from the building next door, and a patch of river approximately three inches wide that is only visible through unfathomable acts of contortion. All of this glory was mine, for the equivalent monthly cost of a four-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath single home upstate. I reviewed my reaction to the news. I thought I'd sounded sincere enough, if not downright ecstatic, but Penelope knew ecstatic wasn't in my nature. I tried to assure myself that my unhappiness stemmed from my genuine concern that Penelope was marrying a truly terrible guy, and not from some deep-rooted envy that she now had a fiancé when I didn't have so much as a second date. I picked up the phone and called Uncle Will, looking for some sort of validation. Will, aside from being one of the brightest and bitchiest people on the planet, was my perpetual cheerleader. He answered the phone with the slightest gin and tonic slur, and I proceeded to give him the short, less painful version of Penelope's ultimate betrayal. Well, darling, it could be far worse. You, my dear, are not marrying that spoiled little brat whose only God-given talents appear to be spending his parents' money and inhaling large quantities of marijuana. Am I mistaken? No, of course not. It just feels like everything's changing. Penelope's my life, and now she's getting married. Marriage is for the bourgeoisie. You know that, Bet. Will continued. Why on earth are you eager to enter into a lifelong relationship, the only purpose of which is to strangle every iota of individuality out of you? I mean, look at me. Sixty-six years old, never married, and I'm perfectly happy. You're gay, Will. And not only that, but you've been living with Simon since before I was born. So you do realize that you are essentially married. Negative, darling. Either one of us is free to leave at any point, without any messy legal or emotional ramifications. And that's why it works. But enough of that. Tell me about the ring. I filled him in on the details he really cares about, reminding myself over and over that this was not a disaster. Just my luck that Penelope's engagement party fell on a Thursday night, 
the night of my standing dinner date with Uncle Will and Simon. Neither appointment could be denied. I had been whistling, screaming, and jumping skywards like a lunatic for 20 minutes to no avail when a lone cab finally pulled up to the curb and took me to my uncle's huge duplex on Central Park West. Bet, I heard Simon call from the lobby's discreetly hidden mailroom. Is that you? He emerged from the mailroom in tennis whites and picked me up in a bear hug as no straight man ever had. Gorgeous girl, how are you? Come, come. Will is sure to be wondering where we both are. Always the perfect gentleman, he took my exploding tote bag from my shoulder, held the elevator door open, and pressed penthouse. The door to the apartment was slightly ajar, and I could hear Will talking to the TV in the study as usual. In the old days, Will had scooped Liza Minnelli's relapse and RFK's affairs. It was the amorality of the Dems that finally pushed him towards politics instead of all things glamorous. He called it the Clinton Clinch. Now, a few short decades later, Will was a news junkie with political affiliations that ran slightly to the right of Attila the Huns. He was almost certainly the only gay right-wing entertainment and society columnist living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan who refused to comment on either entertainment or society. On CNN, Bill Hemmer was interviewing Frank Rich about the media coverage surrounding the last election. Bill Hemmer is a lily-livered milk-toast panty waist, Will snarled as he put down his crystal tumbler and hurled one of his Belgian shoes at the TV. Hi, Will. I suppressed a smile as his eyes stayed riveted ahead. He took a swig and jabbed at the remote. Enough trash for now, he said, hugging me and giving me a quick peck on the cheek. You look great, honey, as always, but would it kill you to wear a dress once in a while? He'd not so deftly moved to discussing his second favorite topic, my life. Uncle Will was nine years older than my mom, and both swore they'd been born to the very same set of parents, but it seemed impossible to comprehend. My mother was horrified I'd taken a corporate job that required me to wear something other than caftans and espadrilles, and my uncle thought the travesty was the suit as uniform instead of some killer Valentino gown or a fabulous pair of strappy libertons. Well, it's just what they do at investment banks, you know. So I've gathered. I just didn't think you'd end up in banking. That again. It's a fine, respectable career. I'd rather see you doing that than any of those hippy-dippy save-the-world jobs your parents would recommend. But you just seem so young to lock yourself into something so boring. You should be out there meeting people, going to parties, enjoying being young and single in New York, not tied down to a desk in a bank. In high school, I'd always thought I'd join the Peace Corps. My parents had taught me that that was a natural step following a college degree. But then I went to Emory and met Penelope. She liked that I couldn't name every private school in Manhattan and knew nothing about Martha's Vineyard. And I, of course, loved that she could and did. We were inseparable by Christmas break. And by the end of freshman year, I had discarded my favorite dead T-shirts. Jerry was long dead anyway. I wore the same jeans and T-shirts as everyone else without even checking to see if they originated in a sweatshop and ate the same burgers and drank the same beer, and it felt fantastic. For four years, I had a group of similar-minded friends, none of whom were Peace Corps-bound. So when all the big companies showed up on campus waving giant salaries and offering to fly candidates to New York for interviews, I did it. Because when you get right down to it, how else is a 22-year-old going to be able to pay rent in Manhattan? What was incredible about the whole thing was how quickly five years had gone by. 
five years had just vanished, leaving barely enough time for me to consider that I loathed what I did all day long. I didn't tell Will I was considering looking for work at a nonprofit. He'd start ranting about how his campaign to unbrainwash me from my parents had failed, and he'd sit dejectedly at the table for the rest of the night. I'd tried it once, just merely mentioned that I was thinking of interviewing at Planned Parenthood, and he'd informed me that while that was a most noble idea, it would lead me straight back down the path to rejoining, in his words, the world of the great unshowered. So we proceeded to cover the usual topics. First came my non-existent love life, followed by a bit of ranting about Will's latest column, and then once again returned to everyone's all-time favorite topic, the abject state of my wardrobe. Just as Will was beginning a small soliloquy on the far-reaching benefits of owning a Chanel suit, the maid knocked on the study door to inform us that dinner was on the table. We collected our drinks and made our way to the formal dining room. Productive day, Simon asked Will, kissing him on the cheek and greeting. He had showered and changed into a pair of Hef-esque pajamas and was holding a glass of champagne. Of course not, Will responded. Deadline's not until midnight. Why would I do a damn thing until 10 o'clock tonight? I dug into my gorgonzola salad as Simon helped himself to a few pieces of sliced steak. Beth, what are your plans for the rest of the evening? asked Simon. Penelope's engagement party. I'm going to have to head there soon, actually. The mothers put the whole thing together before either Avery or Penelope could veto it. That's at some club in Chelsea. What's the name of the club? Will asked. Begins with a B, I think. I pulled a torn slip of paper from my bag. It's on 27th between 10th and 11th. It's called Bungalow 8, they replied in unison. How did you both know that? Honey.